Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey of life. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we don't journey alone. We don't walk alone. At every stage and and every step, you walk with us. You hold our hand. You guide us gently on. Father, we want our lives to tell the story of you, of your providence, of your faithfulness, of your mercy, and of your boundless love. We come before you now with with open eyes and, and ears and hearts to receive the word that you've prepared for us. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to grasp the message you want us to take away and let us not walk away today unchanged. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. I love that song. It tells such a wonderful story about the Christian life, doesn't it? We find ourselves as needy beggars, lost and left to die. Abandoned by this world, writhing in darkness, wounded and betrayed by everything and everyone that that we once held on to. Enslaved by sin. It's utter despair, utter hopelessness. But then something amazing happens, doesn't it? Hope passes by. In the very person of Jesus Christ, a nail-scarred hand reaches out to us and summoning every ounce of ebbing strength that we have left in our tattered bodies, we reach out to Him. We cry out to Him. We call upon Him for salvation. We throw ourselves upon His mercy. And though we deserve every misery of this life and every consequence of death, He hears our cry. He reaches down and picks us up. He forgives our sins. He cleans us up. He dusts us off. He makes us His heirs. He prepares a place in heaven for us so that we can live with Him for all eternity. That's our story. Our lives tell a story. We get a new start, a fresh chance, a clean slate, and the once hopeless outcast becomes an heir of God. And so we begin to crawl. And as he holds our hand, we begin to walk. And our lives are filled with a series of joys and pains, laughter and tears, triumphs and tragedies, songs and silence, victories and losses. But through it all, he's right there holding our hand. He's right there with us. And as we grow, we find that This once crawling new believer is transformed into a mighty saint of faith. And over the years, though many are the loved ones around us, and and as much as our homes may ring with love and, and warmth and laughter and joy, with every passing year, we're reminded that we're not home. This world is not our home. As pilgrims in a strange land, We lift up our eyes and long for the day where no tears will be shed. No sorrow is born. No heartache is suffered. No grief. No night can darken. And finally, as our our bodies give in, 
our spirits rise up and fly away home. Home to the one who loves us and calls us and can't wait to be with us. And as we enter this life with nothing, we leave it taking nothing with us. That's our story. Our lives tell a story. And though we leave this world taking nothing with us, we do leave behind something so very important. We leave behind our story. We leave behind our legacy. We leave behind the chapters of our life story between the beginning and the end. God writes our beginning and God writes our end. But the in-between part, the content, that's our legacy. That's our story. That's what we're writing with every day, with every decision, with every page. I read a poem recently entitled The Dash. It says, I read of a reverend who stood to speak at the funeral of his friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of her birth and he spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth. And now only those who love her know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left. You could be at dash mid-range. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real, following the footsteps of Jesus, not just doing whatever we feel, and be less quick to anger, and show appreciation more, and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? It's a sobering question, isn't it? See, far too often we get so busy with the business of living that we forget why we're alive in the first place. We forget what we're living for. We forget that our lives are telling a story. We forget to pay attention to what message our life story is telling. What legacy we're busy building. Two weeks ago, we heard a Mother's Day story, a sermon about the beginning of the life of Moses. Last week, we heard about the middle of the life of Moses and and the mighty miracles that God performed through him. Today we're going to look at the end of that prolific life. I want you to turn with me to our text this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses' life was neatly divided into exact thirds. He spent the first 40 years of his life as the adopted prince of Egypt, taking in all the knowledge, all the ways of this world, all that it had to offer. He spent the next 40 years of his life, by stark contrast, in the Midian desert as God emptied him of all of that, as he prepared him for a very special calling 
And the last 40 years of his life, Moses spent leading the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and to the very doorstep of the promised land. Exact thirds. And now, at the age of 120 years, we find Moses, verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. God always keeps his promises. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. I want us to stop here. Something struck me. Something that I'm not sure I'd read or paid attention to before. Verse 7 says, Moses died at the age of 120 years old, though his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. So what exactly did Moses die of? He had no symptoms. Why did Moses die? You know why? Because God said it was time. There's no better example than here that our days are not our own. When God says it's time... It's time. God decided Moses' time was up. He buried him with his own two hands. He buried his body. And he took his spirit home. You know, we can try every exercise routine. We can take every supplement. We can try every trick science has to offer. We can try less work, more relaxation, less stress. But when God says our time is up, there's not a thing we can do to add one minute to our time here on earth. All we have is the time He gives us. How are we going to spend it? Let's keep reading. We're going to go on to read about the nation of Israel's response to Moses' passing. Verse 8. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face who did all these miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. What a testament. What a testament to what God can do through a clean vessel. What was Moses' legacy to a watching nation? And to us, a watching generation, thousands of years later, it was a legacy of faith. Moses' life told a story of faith. He was a man who trusted God enough to walk up to Pharaoh with no great army or no great resources behind him and say, let my people go. He was a man who trusted God enough to calm a scared, shaking nation down when standing at the very footstep of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army pressing behind them, mountains to their left and right, he trusted God enough to say, wait a minute, 
Watch what my God is going to do. He was a man who trusted God enough that when faced with endless grumbling and complaining and criticism from his own people, stood his ground and kept his eyes fixed on his creator. His was a legacy of faith. Let's read about that legacy. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I love this Hall of Faith chapter that celebrates the legacies of the Old Testament saints. And it's interesting to note that out of 40 verses here, seven are dedicated to Moses alone. Out of 40 verses that cover all the wonderful legacies of the great men and women of the Old Testament, seven are dedicated to Moses. That tells you what kind of impact that he had, what kind of legacy he left. Let's read verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead at his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. His was a legacy of faith. Friends, his life proved that no matter what, God can do it. No matter how big the mountain, God can move it. No matter how deep the sea, God can divide it. No matter how feeble our skills, God can use us. No matter how mighty the army, God can deliver us. No matter how strong the shackles, God can free us. No matter who can't, God can. How can we have a legacy like that? You look at a man like Moses and say, wow, what an amazing man, but, but I'm just me here. How, how can I have that kind of impact? How can I have that kind of influence? How can I leave that kind of legacy? You know what? You can. You can have the same kind of impact. You can leave the same kind of legacy as every one of those men and women of faith in Hebrews 11. You don't have to, you don't have to move a mountain. You don't have to deliver a nation out of bondage. You don't have to help divide the Red Sea. I'll tell you how we can have that kind of impact. If we recognize and understand what makes up our legacy. There's three things that make up our legacy we're going to look at today. If we recognize those and commit them wholeheartedly to Christ, we can have that same legacy. What are they? What makes up our legacy? The first one, your convictions. The dictionary defines a conviction as a fixed or firm belief. And this is so drastically different than an emotion. Right? Have you ever, have you ever gotten so worked up about a cause or a movement or a course of action you get so emotional about it that people think you've been championing this cause forever. But then what happens? Over time, your emotions subside. The spark fizzles out. It dies out. Something, something more pressing, more important, something newer comes along. And what happens? That cause gets put on the back burner. That's what happens when our emotions drive our actions. Why? Because our emotions are temporary. Emotions are easily swayed. Convictions have nothing at all to do with emotions. So are they, are they preferences? No, preferences are, are strong beliefs, but beliefs that will change. 
Under the right circumstances, our preferences will change. Circumstances such as peer pressure. If your beliefs are such that other people stand with you before you will stand, your beliefs aren't convictions, they're preferences. Family pressure, financial pressures, threats. How far would you go for your beliefs? A conviction is a belief that will not change. No matter the pressures, no matter the circumstances. So stop and take stock. What are my strongest convictions? What are my unshakable beliefs this morning? 2 Timothy 1, 12-14, Paul says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Friends, that's a conviction. If our convictions are based on scriptural truths, if they're based on Jesus Christ, they will never be shaken. They will never be changed. Why? Because the Bible is the ultimate source of truth that never changes. Our society changes. Our world around us change. Preferences change. Ideas change. But our convictions must be fixed and unchangeable. So what are your convictions? Ask yourself today, are my beliefs founded on Christ? And are they unchangeable? Or am I tossed and blown about by every new idea and every whispered doubt that comes to me? You know, a couple weeks ago, Jerry Falwell passed away. And I heard so many comments in the media and so many criticisms in the news about the statements he made over the course of his life and and the stands he took. But something everybody said, even his staunchest enemy, struck me. He said, "I, I may not have believed what he believed, but I respected the strength of his convictions. He never wavered. He never waffled. He stood firm and was always consistent in what he believed. Why? Because his beliefs were founded on Jesus Christ and the scriptural truths of the Bible. Friend, there's nothing else worth believing. There's nothing else worth investing our mind and our faith and our hearts into. There's nothing else worth holding on to. There's something else about our convictions. They don't exist in a vacuum. Our convictions shape our priorities and our actions and our thoughts and our speech. Our convictions become so apparent in the way we live our lives because if what you say you believe isn't evident in your life, something's wrong. Are they really your firm conviction if your life doesn't reflect what you say you believe? Stop and take stock. It should be with an absolute confidence that we echo Paul's word, I know whom I have believed. Are your beliefs fixed? Are they unshakable? Are they founded in scriptural truths? And lastly, are they evident in your life? So first of all, your convictions. When your story is read, what will your convictions say about you? Or sadly, what will your lack of convictions say about you? There's an old country song that says, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Your legacy will be shaped by your convictions, what you firmly and unshakably believe. Number one, your convictions. Number two, your character. Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name, and that's literally translated a good character, is rather to be chosen 
than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. You know, we live in a day that's, that's a moral vacuum. It just seems like you look around, you look at the examples around us, and it seems like character doesn't count anymore. Character no longer matters. Not a priority for people any longer. Charles Swindoll said, listen to what he said. He said, to put it candidly, you can sleep around and still be a good brain surgeon. You can cheat on your mate and have little trouble continuing to practice law. Apparently, it's no problem to stay in politics and plagiarize. You can be a successful salesperson and cheat on your income tax. So seeing this, we have allowed this attitude to permeate throughout Christianity. The perception is that you can do all these things and still be a good Christian. But the reality is that you cannot do any of these things as a Christian and continue enjoying the Lord's blessings. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. A call to holiness. A call to be Christ-like. You know, we can put such a great amount of value on our reputation. Because why? People see our reputation very quickly. and They don't get to know what our character is really like. But there's a vast difference between the two. Don't be fooled into thinking, if you've got a good reputation, ah, you're fine. There's a stark contrast between reputation and character. We get so consumed with maintaining our good image, our good reputation, so that it sometimes hides our rotten character, don't we? It's a thin veil. There's a stark contrast between the two. Listen to this. Reputation is what you're supposed to be. Character is what you are. Reputation is what you have when you come to a new community. Character is what you have when you go away from it. Reputation is made in a moment. Character is built in a lifetime. Reputation grows like a mushroom. Character like an oak. Your reputation is learned in an hour. Your character doesn't come to light for years. A single newspaper report can give you your reputation. It takes a life of toil to give you your character. Reputation makes you rich or makes you poor. Character makes you happy or makes you miserable. Reputation is what men say about you on your tombstone. Character is what angels say about you before the throne of God. Reputation is what men think you are. Your character is what God knows you to be. See, many of of the people around you may know about your reputation, but only those closest to you know what your character is really like. And those are the people whose lives we impact the most. Those are the people we have the most influence upon. What does your character say about you? Do you reflect Christ? Do people see Jesus in you? It's not enough to say it. It's not enough to even believe it. We've got to live it. It's got to show in our character. What comes out of you when you're the most stressed? What comes out of you when you're under the most pressure? When you're mistreated? How about, how about when you've been slighted? What comes out of your character when you're lied about? When you've been falsely accused? You know, we can do our best to shape our reputation, and that's a good thing. But only God can shape our character. He can only go as far 
as you let him. If you want to leave a lasting legacy, if you want to reflect Christ in your character and exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, then let him have all of you. Let him do what it takes and take you through what he needs to to make you more like his son. The first ingredient, convictions. The second, character. What's the third ingredient? Conduct. And this one is so closely tied to the first two because if your convictions are firm and if your character reflects Christ, if your convictions are grounded on scriptural truths, if your character is like Jesus, you know what? Your conduct is going to match. What is our conduct? It's the words we say, the choices we make, the actions we take, the stands we make, the way we treat those around us, not just the ones we love, not just the ones that are easy to love. How about the ones that are difficult to love? How do we treat them? It's the way we live when no one is looking. How about the level of ethics we maintain in our business dealings, in our personal lives? Is our behavior forthright? Are our actions and attitudes pleasing to Christ? Are our actions and attitudes representative of Christ? Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, you don't have to turn, says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The beginning of that verse, 27, in the Greek it says, perform your duties as citizens. Paul is stating that the Philippian people need to act like good citizens. And later on in the letter, he tells them exactly where our citizenship resides. Philippians 3.20 says, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of heaven. We're living here on earth, but we're citizens of heaven. For the Christian, the person who's put their faith in Christ, this world isn't our home. What we're just passing through. We're aliens here on earth. We're foreigners. Our citizenship, Paul states, is in heaven. That's the believer's ultimate home. That's where we come from. That's where we're headed. And because we're citizens of heaven, we're regulated by the laws of heaven. Being citizens of heaven means we obey God's laws. We're to be good citizens, citizens whose conduct is worthy of heaven, conduct which is worthy of him who rules in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded that so many times people judge a place by its citizens. Right. I read a story recently of a couple that traveled to England and, and they were there taking a, um, uh, a, a visit to the zoo. And there was a very obnoxious group of of Americans there and you could see all the locals kind of just shaking their heads as if to say, yep, those are the American tourists. And it's so sad and it provoked the couple so much because they knew that hey, th these people don't represent America. These people don't really represent what Americans are like and what America stands for. It reminds us that we are representatives. We're ambassadors of Christianity. Although it's wrong, people will judge Christians, people will judge Christianity, people will judge Christ 
by the Christians around them. Our conduct must be worthy of what we're representing. Our conduct must be worthy of who we are representing. And this is where so many religions, so many denominations, so many ideologies miss the point. Our conduct must be worthy, not because we want to become citizens of heaven, but because we are citizens of heaven. Listen to Paul's word to another group of believers. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. That you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We see three things in this verse that will make our conduct worthy of the Lord. First, our conduct must be pleasing to Him. In other words, we need to bring glory to the Lord by our conduct. Ask yourself this week, have I done anything that brought glory to God? Did I please Him in some way? Did the actions I took Maybe the words I shared with someone. Did I please the Lord? If not, we need to revisit our conduct. We need to please God by being worthwhile and loyal citizens of heaven. The second thing in the verse that will show for walking a walk worthy of the Lord is being fruitful in good works. In other words, being a Christian doesn't mean sitting on our hands waiting for something to happen. We've got to serve the Lord. We've got to be in His service. It means doing good works. It means being fruitful for Him. And the third thing in that verse, which shows if our walk is worthy of the Lord, is that our knowledge of Him is increasing. Are you growing spiritually? Am I learning more and more about God as I travel on this life? Am I reading His Word continually and consistently? His instruction manual for life. Friend, if we're growing in our knowledge of Him, if we're fruitful in every good work, if we're pleasing Him in all we do, in all we say, in how we live, our conduct is going to reflect that. With every word, with every action, with every motive, with every attitude. The Lord will be pleased and the people around us will be touched. Contrary to much of what we see in our Christian community, Christian conduct isn't a coat we throw on Sunday morning. It's not an act. You don't act godly. You either are or you aren't. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to work hard to maintain a facade of godliness. Because try as hard as you will, God sees right through it. And the circumstances, the situations of life will eventually uncover every every strongest facade, every strongest front. Give God your heart. Let him be at the foundation of your convictions. Let him build and rebuild your character. And you know what? Before you know it, your conduct will align with the reality of your walk. And that conduct will be a testimony to everyone around you. Your convictions, your character, and your conduct. What you believe, who you are, and how you live. Those three things, it's simple. They shape your legacy. They will define... Who you are. Friends, we have a watching world around us. We have watching eyes upon us. We have so many lives looking to see what message our story tells. If you claim you're a Christian, you know what? You're the fifth gospel. To the world around you, to all those who don't know Jesus Christ personally, you are the fifth gospel. So ask yourself, what story does the gospel Of me tell. What is your gospel story? 
What is the gospel of Ken? What is the gospel of Alex? What is the gospel of Sonia? What story does that gospel tell? What message are you preaching? Is it really a turnaround story of Christ's redemption? Of His grace? Of what He can do through a willing life? Or is your gospel story a gospel of of meaninglessness? Of empty pursuits? Of wrong decisions? Of wasted years? Have you been so busy filling your life's pages with nothing? With all of this world's pursuits? With all that this world has to offer? And then at the end you've still found you've got nothing. You've got no contentment. You've got no meaning. You've found no purpose. You know what? You're in good company. The wisest king in all of history took a similar course. He spent countless years accumulating, experiencing, gathering, pursuing everything possible in this world. And at the end of all of that, he made an assessment. He made a conclusion. In the opening verse of of his book in Ecclesiastes, he said, meaningless, meaningless, utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Friend, that's the concluding chapter of every life story that's spent pursuing anything outside of Christ. Utter meaningless. Is that where you find yourself today? The bad news is that you've wasted countless chapters, running in circles and getting nowhere. But the good news is that as of right this moment, your story's not finished. There's still some pages left to be written. How many? We don't know. Only God knows how many more pages in your life story. How many more chapters can still be written? But there's one thing God is offering you today. A happy ending. Hope is passing by today. In the person of Jesus Christ, a nail-scarred hand is reaching out to you today. And he's offering to replace your hopelessness with the hope of heaven. He's offering to replace your shame with permanent forgiveness. He's offering to replace your meaninglessness with eternal purpose. He's offering to replace your depression with a lasting joy. Your restlessness with a peace that nothing can take away. Friend, He offers you salvation today and a new chapter, a new ending to your story, a new start. And that ending is a bona fide, take it to the bank, sealed in stone, guaranteed happy ending. He knows what He's doing. The greatest adventure of your life is about to start if you'll take Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today. Let him have all of you and let him rewrite that ending. You were headed somewhere. He can reroute reroute it and rewrite it. And dear believer, as you review the pages and the chapters of your life, of your story, do you find that uh, you've strayed? You've strayed from the theme of God's redemption, of his purpose for your life. Do you now see that the gospel of you is preaching a message that is contrary to the one God wanted you to preach? Contrary to His purpose for your life. Stop wasting time. God has a mission. He has a purpose for you. 
Stop the tangent. Stop the strain. Stop the dabbling. Stop the trivia. Stop the sin. Start a new chapter. Recommit to Christ your convictions, your character, and your conduct. And let your story be a legacy of faith that others will be inspired by. What you believe, who you are, and how you live. I guarantee you, if you commit those to Christ today and every day forward, your legacy will speak volumes about what Christ can do. We don't know how much time is left. We don't know in each one of our stories how many pages are still to be written. Only God can dictate its beginning and its end, but its contents are up to you. Are you proud of the message your story tells? More importantly, is God honored by the message your story tells? What does your watching world see in your life? When it's all been said and done, and the last page has been written, and the book is closed, what will your legacy be? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want our lives to speak so loudly of you. This world is crying out for clarity in the chaos, for peace in the noise, for hope in the despair. And you've called us to take that answer to them. Father, let us not forget our calling. Let us not forget our purpose. Let us live clean lives and be clean vessels so that you can use us, so that you can work through us. Let our convictions be founded on you. Let our character reflect you. Let our conduct illustrate you. We want to be your hands and your feet to a lost and dying world. Father, we want our lives to have an impact for your kingdom. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to count. We want our legacy to be one of faith that inspires and leads a watching world right to you. We commit now to you our convictions, our characters, and our conduct. Take our life story, Lord. Fill its pages with your principles and your power. We love you and we thank you for your presence with us this afternoon. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen.